Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo, and hello, everybody. It is funny every week that my dad reminds me that I'm in the shallow end of the gene pool, but thanks, Dad. That means he must be in the deep end of the gene pool. Uh, My name is Mike Moynihan. This is Golden Age of Cardboard, hopefully your favorite vintage podcast that you listen to and or watch on YouTube. Yeah, today's episode is going to be fun. We're going to do something. uh, I got a guest today, a guest y'all are familiar with, and a very good friend of mine. I'm proud to say. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a different topic. We're going to talk about trading today and the art of trading. But before we get to that, I want to bring up a topic because I have gotten a question. Lots of you reach out and I on Instagram, YouTube comments. I really appreciate it, by the way. It, it kind of fuels me and I get great ideas for shows. And one that has come up multiple times from people is, hey, Mike, you should do a Q&A episode. And so I am right now going to solicit for you guys to submit questions to me about vintage cards, about sets, about whatever you want, the hobby, you name it. And it's going to be kind of a no holds barred. Please ask any questions. There's no dumb questions, by the way. Uh, You don't know till you know, and I may not even know all the answers, but if I can get the questions and prepare an episode where I go through as many of them as I can. I, I think that would be very entertaining, at least for me to try to, and probably for you to try to hear me try to answer some of these questions that come in. But I will certainly take all questions. Please send them to me. You can send them to me either in a YouTube comment down below. If you don't want to put it in a comment down below or you're listening on podcast, just send it to me in a private message at Baseball Collector Mike on Instagram. And uh, yeah, if you want to send me a question and you're not on Instagram, also uh, just put a comment in the YouTube section. Hey, I want to send you a question and I'll, and I'll get you my email address and can send that to you as well so that all questions can come in. And, and I, that'll be a, kind of fun. I, I'm excited to see what kind of questions people have out there because the reality is I don't really know what you guys want to hear about or want to uh, ask me about. So who knows? We'll see what how this goes. But uh, that'll be an episode that I try to do in the next few weeks. So if you have a question, you're listening to this, you're watching this, don't wait. Just send me the question and I'll collect them all. So on to today's episode, the art of trading. Uh, before I bring my guest on, I'll tell you guys a, a little bit of background. My, my episode last week when I was talking about projects and things that my kind of collecting history, I gave you guys a deep dive into my collection history uh, and experience, trading was never a huge part of it, quite frankly. And it's because of the way that I think. And it is, I am a collector 
hoarder, whatever word you want to use to describe it. And I typically don't have a lot of stuff that I don't want. I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't want it for my collection. And once I have it, again, unless uh, there's a significant financial need and I need to sell it, which hasn't happened very much in my life, I'm blessed to say that, or you know, I don't open a lot of wax where I just have all these extra cards, but I had an experience this week that really fueled and prompted this episode. And that was a person reached out. I had opened a box of flawless, which is uh, panini flawless, 2021 baseball way out of my comfort zone, way out of my wheelhouse. I love modern cards. It's just, that's not a product I'm typically going to, you know, shell down $1,800 for, for a box. It was given to me. And so with the caveat that I opened the box, I couldn't hold it or sell it, which was fine. Uh, I got a thrill out of open. It's always fun to open wax. Like anybody that says it's not fun to open wax, especially free wax. Like, come on. It's, it's, it's great, but it's the, the thrill of that chase and the disappointment 90% of the time when you end up with a dud. And so that's why I don't open a ton of wax. Although I have nothing against it. It's just not the way I want to spend my hobby money. So point being, I pulled a bunch of cards and I've had several people reach out for different cards that are, that I pulled that most of them are newer cards, rookies, you know, modern players. And I had one, uh, it was John reached out, his name's John. And he wanted the, uh, pulled a Tommy Heinrich, you know, triple relic card number seven. And I was like, well, you know, great. Stuck it in the dark hole and probably never to see the light of day again. Well, he reached out because we had tried to work out a deal for an Adrian Beltre autograph that he had that I really liked. And he goes, hey, I'll trade you for that straight up for that Beltre autograph for that Tommy Heinrich jersey, you know, relic card. And I'm like, great. That's a fair trade. I got something I wanted for something I didn't want. And that's the first trade I have done like that in a really long time, really long time. So I wanted to bring someone on today who does a lot more trading than I do because it's more of me asking him questions and how does he think about it and all that. And it's everybody's favorite triple crown. It's JT triple crown 24. JT, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show again. This is your, I don't know how many appearances you've made on Golden Nature Cardboard, but uh, welcome. Thank you. A lot has changed. Like my entire background changed since last time I was on. It's kind of freaking me out a little bit. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm doing well. I'm excited because last night you finalized some plans to come to Dallas for the next Dallas card show in March. Uh, you're going to get to stay with me and probably hang out with my dad again. I'm really sorry about that, but uh, we will eat well and have fun, right? That's the plan. We'll see. <laughs> That's always the plan. Um, so trading, I know you do a ton of it because you, we talk offline a lot and oh, I did this deal and I did that deal. And I, I took this card I just traded for like an hour ago and I traded it up to be able to work it into a deal. And, and it's amazing for you to tell me these stories about trading. And I guess we need to, since this is a vintage card show, try to keep it on vintage, but I think, trading concept overall would you agree that they apply no matter whether it's vintage or modern or ma basketball or 
football or baseball. Agree, disagree? I 100% agree, and I think it's stood true for the test of time. So when cards were first put out, a lot of the packaging, you'll see them say trading cards. One of the cards I actually pulled out for tonight's episode to show if you're watching on YouTube, I'll just give you a little sneak peek of it. But on the back there, it's going to be difficult to tell with my poor lighting. But if you're listening to this and not watching, it says this is from a trading cards product, 2012 Tops trading cards. I have seen packaging for the new Top Series 1 coming out this week. It says trading cards on it. So these are cards that it doesn't explicitly say what you have to do with them when you get them out of the package, but they've been called trading cards for a very long time. There are whole games that are called trading card games, which is, is a whole genre in collecting in general. So, yeah, I would say that it extends through all walks of life and hobby. Yeah, I, I mean, of course trading the idea of trading is built into the system but it's a it's a i think something that's lost and been lost does not that it doesn't happen at all but i think it happens a lot less than certainly it used to right and probably a lot of that has to do with well i'm trying to think what the reasons might be that trading is probably because it feels like I don't have a lot of people around me that collect cards that I can just, cause I don't want to trade. I feel nervous trading cards over the interwebs, right? I feel like, man, I'm, I'm going to get screwed somehow in this deal. And that makes me more apprehensive to work a deal out. If I was a collector that traded and again, guys, I trade like I said, in the beginning, the story I told wasn't a lie. <laughs> I haven't traded in a long time and it's not that I'm against it. I just, again, I don't, I feel like to trade, you have to have something you either don't want or you're willing to trade something that you like, but you trade for something you just like more. You know what I mean? Like you're going, okay, I really like this. I dig it, but I really like that. And if that has to be part of the deal for me to get that awesome card that I've wanted forever or whatever, that's part of the equation too. There's so much that goes into it, right? I mean, this could be a whole episode for your podcast, by the way, JT has a podcast called psychology of sports cards. Uh, I've been a guest on his show. So go check that out. Make sure you're checking that out. But I think trading would be an interesting topic for the psychology of sports cards, right? Yeah. I don't know if I want everyone to know my secrets though. So we might have to hold that one back a little bit. No, no, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, the decision to part with a card, especially if it's part of your collection uh, or if you're on my side of the table often as a dealer, there's a lot of considerations that go into it that we may not even really think about are going into it, but they're there and we're subconsciously going through this and analyzing any detail when we're potentially looking at a trade. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Would you say, and, and I've seen this, I just want to hear your perspective. You're going to more shows than I am as a dealer and doing things. Do you, is there a lot of trading happening at shows nowadays? I wouldn't say that it's rampant, but it happens often. And the prospect of you being approached with a trade is much more significant. Um, 
you, we see the people walking around with the Pelican cases, of course, but they're not on the show floor trading with one another all the time. Does it happen? Yeah, that's something we didn't see before. But I have a lot of people who approach my table now with a box of stuff asking to trade for things or fellow dealers asking, hey, do you see anything in my case that you like to make a trade as well? I think it's a really fundamental tool in the hobby, especially if you're hobbying on a budget, right? You have stuff that you don't necessarily care about. Um, for example, I'll use an example of a car that you have. Not that you don't care about this car, but you have your 2012 Heritage High number Bryce Harper. Right. I know we've discussed several times what you plan to do with it. And one of the considerations has been trading for a vintage card. And you could knock out a really significant vintage card that would cost you literally thousands of dollars off of your want list for a car that was trapped in your closet for 10 years that you paid $12 to be graded. Right. And I mean, that was so long ago now that it almost feels like it's a sunk cost. So you're able to upgrade your collection and get something that you really want, not that you don't like the Harper, but you can get something that more so fits what you want without having to really pay anything for it. Maybe there's some cash involved, but it's it's going to be minimal depending on what you're actually trading for. So to be able to utilize what you already have, whether it's you open up a box and you've got something really cool, or you just happen to buy a collection and, or you're taking something on from a consignment or whatever the case may be, whatever position you're in, it's that idea of not having to put any additional money into getting new cards that I think is so appealing to a lot of people. So yeah, it's definitely a great tool and I see it more often now than when I first started doing this as a seller. Yeah, I think you hit an incredibly key point and that is no more dollars out of pocket or very minimal. I know for, I, I just remembered another trade that I did essentially. I my, And I think I've told this story you certainly know this story, but my uh, Mike Trout rookie, PSA 10, 2011 tops update. It's the same thing. I found one in my box rummaging, just like the Harper. I had another one given to me by a friend, a raw one. And I took him to the national in 20. God, what was that? 19. I think it was Chicago 19. And I had those two cards. I got him graded. One came back a nine, one came back a six. And I'm like, okay, how can I parlay this? I don't need two of them, right? And I'd really like a 10 because I didn't get a 10 on either one that I graded. If I would have gotten a 10 on one of one of the ones I graded, I would have traded the other one or sold the other one for sure. But I was able to take that and parlay the, the nine and the six. I had to add 50 bucks, which not that big a deal. Actually, I actually had to borrow the money <laughs> from Eric. But I didn't, I was out of money. It was literally the last thing I did at the show that year. I was totally out of cash and I borrowed the money from Eric, I, the cash, and I traded those two cards, 50 bucks, PSA 10 now resides in my collection. So I, I made that, I was able to parlay things that I wasn't as happy about, like we talked about, very little cash outlay to get a card I'm really excited to own long-term and have it in the PC forever. So. Uh, but just like trade, I, I see, you know, people trading cards all the time, just stuff out of showcases it shows. And I, I think you're, I think the key point is the lack of cash outlay, especially like you said, if you don't have a lot in the card you're trading to get a card that does have a lot of value, that is 
a huge win, I think, even if you like the card that you are trading away because of the, your investment into it, what you have into it is not that significant compared to what the current value of that card is. And, oh, man, I can go get this other card. Um, but when you're trading as a dealer, JT, is it similar mindset as a collector? Or do you think there's a difference between the way a dealer would trade? I don't necessarily need you to give away all your secrets. I'm not. But. You're not going to run into a lot of people watching this show anyway when you're trying to make deals. So okay, but just maybe how? What's your mindset? What do you think about as a dealer? What are you trying to do when someone comes up to you and offers a trade? It goes into understanding first of all, and I think this is really key. You do not have to be a dealer to take this as like as a piece of advice, but knowing what is the goal of both parties. So. Why is the person trying to trade for your card interested in your card and how serious about it are they about acquiring it? For me as a dealer, my goal is to increase the value of what I have. And that's why you'll often hear dealers who will say, well, I have 800 sell value on this, but if I'm trading, I need to get a thousand for it. Which to me, I've never been of that mindset. It, in my head, yes, I wanna trade up, of course, but I may be stuck with something that might be very difficult to trade or very difficult to sell, I should say, um, where it's a very niche market. I need to find a specific buyer where I can trade into something, let's say a mantle. Everyone loves mantle. I, I have no problem selling a mantle. Every mantle I've had that I've tried to sell was gone pretty much as soon as I tried to sell it and put it on the open market. So if I could get something that becomes a little bit more liquid for me, that's where I'm going to maybe make more of a concession. Uh, but the same ideas kind of apply where I'm always trying to figure out why they want my card, what they're really interested in and in getting back. Are they trying to just increase the value of what they have? Do they really like the player or team that's depicted on the card that I have? Are they working on a set that has come up a few times where they really need this card for their set? they kind of tip their hand a little bit and maybe they're willing to concede a bit more on their end. So understanding that. Uh, I, think I want to more... interrupt you. I'm sorry. I want to ask her. Uh, sorry. As you're, as you're saying things, I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I got to ask him about this. Yes, you're please making, do. <laughs> you're making a lot of great points because I want to try to educate people as much out there. First of all, do you can put this in the back burner of questions I want you to ask answer in a minute, but when someone says, Hey, I'm doing this set, does that make you have more sympathy for them? Or does it make you lick your child? And I don't mean this meanly, like you're, you're running a business. I'm not, it's not critical. It's okay. I think I can get more out of this guy. Um, value wise, because he's out desperate's probably a mean word eager, right? More eager to try to work on a set. Um, and then maybe explain, and I have to sneeze in a second. So, uh, but go through the nomenclature in trading of trading up and trading down. And and I've heard those terms a lot. I know what they mean, but I explain that for people out there that if they're in a trade or in up, are you willing to trade down all these things? Explain what that nomenclature is. I'm going to hold up my camera and mute myself and you explain that. All right. During the sneeze break, I will explain. Um, to answer Mike's first question, I would say that if I'm looking at someone who's maybe working on a set or they really need something, that looks like it took the wind out of you there. It did. That was a rough <laughs> sneeze. Thank God for um, you. 
Yeah. So if we're, if we're looking at someone who is looking to complete a set, now I've been this in this position before on both sides. So for my collection myself, I've needed a card to complete a rainbow. This has happened twice. One time the seller made a concession to me and they cut me a break. I guess they felt a bit of sympathy or empathy or they wanted to see me complete something. The other time the seller jacked up the price on me because I had was open and honest. And when I've told those stories before, I've had mixed reaction to it. Like, oh, why would you say that? Or yeah, I would have said that too. How I look at it from my, there's a whole moral thing, as you said, you know, I'm trying to run a business, but is it wrong of me to jack up the price on someone? And I think that's a question that we have to answer for ourselves personally. The way I approach it is that if they tell me this and they put this trust into me, they kind of put themselves in a vulnerable spot by saying that because now they've kind of tipped their hand to me where I know that they need this. And I know that they are more willing to make a deal with me regardless. They may concede a little bit more value on there. And we'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute. Um, but for me, if we end up making this deal, they're going to remember it. Okay. It, it, the set requires them to acquire X number of cards. Same thing with a rainbow to a smaller extent. But I remember specifically those two deals, building those rainbows. And the thing is, is that I went back to the guy who sold me the card who did concede to me. The other guy I never did business with again. So for me, I'm willing to make that concession in hope that you'll remember that. It will leave a good impact. And even if you don't come back, you'll tell your friend to come back. And in my opinion, it's the right thing to do on top of it. So that's my take on it. Not everyone has the same approach and that's perfectly fine. But if we're talking about trading up or trading down, it's basically relative to the value of your card. So if I have a hundred dollar card and I'm trading, my goal is to trade into a card that I think I could sell for more money. If I'm trading down, it may mean that I can sell the same card for less money, but it may be easier to move. So that's a reason that I would trade down. If I'm trading up, it's of course to make more money. Um, very rarely am I going to try to trade even that's going to be, which would be getting a card of the same value, which is very difficult to do to get two cards to line up where both parties are interested. Usually there is some kind of concession that has to be made on one side or another. And by concession, I'm talking, of course, about you have to, you know, someone is giving up something, whether it's value or an additional card to sweeten the deal, whatever the case may be. Uh, it's that tug of war type of thing where, you know, we have to find that equilibrium where things balance out and you kind of just have to make adjustments on both sides until both parties are satisfied with their trade. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, let me go back to your point about the conceding to help somebody out in a trade, maybe to be to do the right thing and all of that. Again, I usually trade. I usually actually I trade for cardboard all the time. I trade hundred dollar bills for pieces of cardboard or twenty dollar bills for pieces of cardboard. So I'm trading cash for cardboard all the time. And when I'm doing that, I find that most dealers, if I tell them what I'm doing, why I want this card, that I can get a much better deal, especially if I'm paying, you know, if I'm if I'm buying the card, not if I'm this is not a card for card trade. It's more, I'm, I want to buy this card. Most people, most dealers are, I find that to be a, a 
smart tactic to ex to talk to the dealer and explain why you want this card. And because most dealers are collectors too, or they have been at some point and they understand the hunt and you finally find a card. And the big thing is never lie. I don't think if you're talking to a dealer, the last thing you want to do is create some Sally sob story. That's just not true. I think that is despicable, quite frankly, if someone did that. Uh, but when I talk to a dealer, I'm like, on it, like, Hey man, I, this is the last card I need for a certain player run or, uh, the last card for a tops one. I was at the last Dallas show and I needed a 54 top skill Hodges. Once he got elected to the hall of fame, my 54 tops run was now not complete. And I'm like, Oh, and I found one. And I was telling the dealer the story, like uh, Hodges got in and now I've got to get this card to finish my 54 hall of famer run. And it was all a true story and he had sympathy. And I, I think I got a better deal on the card than I might have some random person anonymous anonymously came up and wanted to purchase the card so it can be advantageous to tell stories i just again i want to emphasize honesty is always the best policy and but i think that people can sympathize with that even not just as you're buying cards for sure but at when you're trading and so i think it's all about your angle and your and the way you present it and all that certainly matters and it would matter to you if you're willing to concede more or not right um I've been searching for 10 years for this card or whatever. And they come up to you and you, you know, I go, okay, I, let's, let's end that drought for you or whatever the case might be. Um, but there is so much nuance to it. You mentioned adding cards to sweeten deals. And I've seen you do that. I've literally watched you do this where you'll either the, the deal isn't quite equal and you'll say, Hey, what if you threw that in too? And it's probably not a card you're interested in, interested in per se, but you you know you can take that card and it adds value to what you're getting and you know it might be an easy card to move on the other side or whatever. Um, that can be an advantage to collectors too. If you're dealing with a dealer and they you want a certain card and you think it's a fair deal, but they go, hey, throw this card in, you have to make a decision. Like, is that, is that card worth whatever the throw-in card is that the dealer's asking for? Is it is a deal breaker or not for you. Um, sometimes you, I think as collectors, we need to be willing to give more because uh, we need to, in a trade, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to give up more to get a card. I really want because this other person on the other end of when you're trading with a dealer has to make a profit there. It's their livelihood in most cases. Right. So I think that's true for the most part that, we need to concede a little bit as collectors if we're on the collector side of that equation. But I think it's a little more cutthroat maybe when it's dealer to dealer or, you know, is that, have you found that to be true that dealers are a lot more savvy? Yeah, it's i uh, I'll use this analogy. It's, it's like putting two magnets with the same polarization together. They repel. Right. We both have the same goal of making as much money as possible. So when two dealers are making a deal together, all of a sudden it's so, so much harder to, to get this going where, because we both have the same goal. And unless one of us doesn't think something is as valued as much as something else, that deal is probably not going to happen. Whereas a collector, there's just something that matches so well with the collector and the dealer. They're wanting to get this card for their collection. It's not going back out on the market somewhere. 
Um, and as a dealer, I'm trying to make money as well. And I, I think what your point was is that, you know, being willing to make those concessions to get a card you want, if it's within reason, I definitely agree with that. But also, don't want a dealer push you around. And I'm saying this as the dealer. I have had so many people try to trade with me where they think that I'm not going to let a deal go through over 5 to $10 because their card, they value it at 5 to $10 less than what I have. And that's just not true. Like, there's a lot of things going through my mind. But like, if I've had this card for two years sitting in the showcase, and you're the very first person to ever show interest in it, I am much more likely to move it to you because I want to get something fresh that I think will ultimately get me to a cash out at the end of the day. Even if I have to concede what is $5 in my mind in value, that card is only worth what someone is willing to pay. And to this point, no one's been willing to pay that price if I've been having it for six months, a year, two years. So I think that's really crucial to understand there is that it doesn't have to be the zero sum transaction every single time, especially if you place the intrinsic value into the card. Now, what I recommend trading away your one, your, or excuse me, your $200 cards for $100 cards. I mean, if you really want to, yes, but I think that there is some middle ground and it's ultimately up to you and how bad you want a card, how rare is it, how likely are you to see it again? All things that you should probably consider before making that deal, just as you would if you were going to buy the card outright. It just so happens to be that your currency happens to be partial cardboard and partial paper. Do you do a lot of cash trade deal? Like, do you, do you think that's the more comp like to equal it up as best you can? There's cash given on one side or the other. Yeah, cash is king. Uh, it can fill in a lot of stop gaps because, like I said earlier, the chances that two parties have any combination of cards that you can think of, however many cards it may be, where they can work out a perfect deal where both sides are happy, to me, feels rare. Now, I have done it before, and I've seen it happen before. It's not like it doesn't happen at all. But a lot of times, cash is the ultimate equalizer, especially from someone who is originally looking to sell. Because I've had individuals, for example, I had a Tom Brady mosaic genesis that I had traded for. We're, we're on a vintage show here, so I'll give another example. I traded for a 51 Bowman Ted Williams PSA 6, and that deal required a little bit of cash at the end to go through because the seller needed to get at least some cash for the card, even though they were increasing their total all uh, overall, some of their assets, they needed just that little bit of cash because at the end of the day, they have to make money. And I understand that. So I threw them a little bit of cash to make the deal happen. So yeah, it, it happens all the time. And I think a lot of times it's usually the last step in a deal, whereas the cards themselves typically make up your core of, uh, of what you're trying to get. Yeah it's funny to think we've all heard this term probably before, but the best trade is one where either both parties end up happy or both parties end up slightly disappointed. Right. I mean, if, if both parties feel like they got a little screwed, maybe that's a fair trade. And if both parties leave the trade happy, that's probably a pretty good trade. You definitely don't want one party to feel great and the other one to feel necessarily slighted and but usually like you said it's not a zero-sum gain most of the time what are some i have some tips and things on what i'm trying if i'm telling people hey if you're thinking about trading um what to look for what to think about 
is there something you want to throw out there and we can kind of go back and forth on some tips? I don't have anything that jumps out right away besides just general open-mindedness. Um, yeah, I think when, and that's a good thing to have regardless of what scenario you're going into. And trading can take place in many ways. Maybe you're online if you're someone who does online trades. Personally, I don't really do that too much. It's mostly buying and selling. I think more so when we think of trading, it's an in-person type of thing. So if you're going to a show or even a trade night with how popular those have become, keep an open mind. That's that's yeah. the biggest thing. But I'd love to hear some of your tips and kind of play some yeah. volleyball. So that. I get, uh, and like I said, a lot of people reach out and make comments about the show and things. And, and what I've heard a lot lately is, Hey, I've been a collector. I've gotten back in the hobby. I bought a bunch of new stuff because it was what was available and on the shelves kind of thing over the last few years. And now I've got all this stuff. I've gotten some of it graded, da, 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 da. but I'm really wanting to shift into vintage and it's, uh, I'm glad I found your podcast. Yay. All that stuff. And thank you to all those people that have reached out in that regard. Shifting from, and I think it's very difficult to trade modern stuff for vintage stuff. I think that becomes where most likely you're going to have to trade more modern to get less vintage. If that, what we, we would use the term, you're going to have to trade down um, to, to make that deal probably happen. And that might be okay for you because you're wanting to get rid of the crap anyway. You know, I call it crap. That's not fair. A lot of people love modern stuff. You might want to get rid of the stuff you don't like anymore to get the stuff you you want to start focusing on and you want to use the assets that you have, which is the modern cards to do that and not outlay cash. Something I think is, and this is what I look for, even as a buyer of cards, if I'm walking a show, finding that dealer that has 99% modern stuff, and then they have the random vintage card in their showcase or just a couple of vintage cards and the rest of it's, they might have a couple of vintage baseball cards and the rest of it's modern basketball. And you know that they just acquired that as part of a deal to sweeten a deal or to make a deal happen, that that's not really their milieu of what they love to collect. And so I look at that as an opportunity to, to maybe get a card to get a better deal, simply put, because they're just looking to cash out on that card. Like you said earlier, they're trying to just, that was part of a deal probably or something. It's not their thing. How can I take advantage of that? I think you can use modern, if they're a modern dealer, modern, mainly modern dealer, and you have modern cards that you're trying to trade, I think that can work to your advantage if you spot a card in their showcase or on a trade night or something and you see somebody with that random vintage baseball card that you want, uh, you, can, you can use that to your advantage. You think that's a good tip? Absolutely. It's happened to me before because I'm that guy who has a couple of vintage cards in his case. And I've had times where half my case is vintage and then there's like just a couple of modern cards in there. So it goes the other way around, too. So it's always interesting to see that. And those are the type of people that you can generally uh, work with. I will say that most vintage dealers, the way they like it so much is because it doesn't really change all that much, which is weird to say with how volatile things have been over the last year and a half where things fluctuate a lot but i think you're seeing now more so vintage is very steady they know their stuff the sets don't change there's not a bunch of new parallels to learn no new like first off the line or fast break or any of these configurations 
it stays the same. It's very simple and straightforward. They know the condition very well. It's, it's I wouldn't say it's easy, but you can become a vintage expert, I think, a lot easier in terms of being able to keep up than you can with modern because not much changes. Um, yeah, but I think it's difficult if you're if you have a bunch of modern stuff to go to a vintage dealer that's all vintage, you're going to have a hard time trading, right? And because they're not, they're like, no, I don't, I don't want any of that stuff. I, again, you got to find somebody that wants what you have to trade uh, to make a deal happen. And I think that's, right. that's a lot more difficult in the vintage world, right? I mean, if you're just dealing with a guy that's, that that's a vintage guy, but you're bringing up a point that I want to get into, and it's a tip that I want you to talk about too. And that's, you need to really, if you're taking cards to trade, you better know what you have into the card, what it's worth currently on the market, more or less, what are, what are the comps? Because when somebody says, Hey, what, what do you value this at? Your answer can't be, hold on, let me look it up. Right. That is a, typically a deal killer. It's a, it's an annoyance and usually dealers are wanting to make deals pretty quick because they got people lined up the, at their table, so to speak. And so it is important to know your comps. And like, even if you're, if you eyeball a card at a, on a showcase that you're like, Ooh, I like that. I have some stuff. Maybe he might do it. I'll at least ask no, no, right. Like you take your time away from the dealer to look up what that other card might be, you know, maybe they have it a little high priced or we'll just make sure, okay, is that a fair deal? Or is that a fair price that they have it marked at? Maybe ask them if it's not marked, Hey, what do, what do you have on that card? Do your research real quick, then go back to the dealer and say, Hey, I, I saw you had that card. I think it's a little much, but maybe I have some stuff that you might be willing to trade for. And you can get, know your comps is what I'm trying to, that, that's the overall ideas, no values learn, you know, find them out quickly without wasting a dealer's time because you're just going to annoy them and they're going to be less likely to do a deal with you uh, because they're going to want to move on to the next thing. So I think that's an important part of the process, don't you? I 100% agree. You, you got to do your homework before you go into it. If it means that much to you or you want to, you know, you don't want to make a lot of concessions on something or you don't want to get um, come out on the wrong end of a lopsided deal. Yes. Go into it. What I personally like to do just so I'm not kind of just standing around there. And this can be as both a buyer and a seller. So I'll go back to my table if I'm set up at the show or I'll just go off in the corner somewhere if I'm at a show strictly to buy. And that is, then I will go look up the card because I don't know the value of every card. I know the value of my cards and I know what I have into them, but something that I'm looking to prospectively trade for, I may not know exactly what it is, especially if it's something that's a bit more rare that you don't see every day. And if we go back to my point of open-mindedness, something that I wasn't expecting necessarily to walk into. A lot of my best trades, I never expected <laughs> to go into and get those guards, but hey, they presented themselves to me. And that's, that's what I ended up capitalizing on. So I think knowing that ahead of time is key. And then you can kind of go back and see how far off base they are. Um, Another thing that you can consider too, and if you mentioned this too, is that it's very difficult maybe to trade your modern stuff into vintage. And some people may roll their eyes when I have this suggestion, but you may have to just put some money into a few vintage cards and then use those to trade. So 
you could say, oh, well, Triple Crown, you're just suggesting that I become a flipper. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying use these other cards as a tool to trade into something that you really want. I've seen plenty of guys who are really great collectors out there who have done the same thing. They go buy a few cards that they really enjoy, that they believe in, and then they'll go and try to trade up to get something else. It's a lot more common than what you think. So that might be something is that, yes, you may have to put in a few extra dollars at first, but you never know when you could possibly find something for cheap and then trade up into something else. And, and vintage is much different in modern in the sense that the whole eye appeal and the differences in the grades means so much. Uh, for example, my 51 Bowman Ted Williams that I had traded for, I ended up getting what would be considered slightly above high VCP for it at the time because it was such a beautiful example of the card. But a lot of the dealers today, they will just go by average VCP or average eBay sales. They don't necessarily consider how nice is my card comparatively. Now, we're looking at something more modern, like, for example, a Trout Rookie. The differences between the 9 that you had, Mike, and the 10 that you eventually got are probably very minute. There's not very many, you know, the centering isn't going to be completely different. The registration is going to be completely different. Whereas my Ted Williams card in a 6, a 6 can manifest itself in many different ways it For could sure. be grossly off-centered it could have rounded corners it could have a little ding onto the edge it could have a wrinkle that makes it a five automatically but the rest of the card is brilliant uh, you could have a pinhole where hey, it's a one but the rest of the card is stunning and if you can look past that you can really find some beautiful examples that people may be undervaluing just because the assigned grade it's only supposed to be worth this much, but the, you want to get the card itself. And if you are if you have a keen eye, that's where you can really get some of those beautiful examples. So use that to your advantage. When people are valuing their stuff as average, if you think it's above average, that is going to help you tremendously. And it, I think you should be willing to concede more. I mean, I think as a buyer of cards mostly, like I said, almost exclusively, if I see a great example of a card, I'm willing to pay up for that beautiful example of that assigned grade. It's almost like the assigned grade becomes a starting point, not the end all be all in terms of value. And I'll even, I go so far as on VCP, you mentioned VCP, looking, you can look at on VCP, all the, the pictures of other recently sold versions of that examples of that grade for example and you say it's a psa six ted williams go look at the last sixes and man mine looks this one looks way better than that and he's got it priced under that one you know and it went it was an auction and you can look it was at auction by it now there's so many different things that go into you valuing the card that you're trying to acquire right and maybe the value that you put on it if you're going to trade it if they're Oh, the last, if the, they flip it and the dealer said, oh, the last one sold for $500. And you're like, yeah, but mine is, you know, a better example. I think it's more in the $600 range. You have to be able to make a case for that and, and show examples of why you think that or else the dealer's going to, and the dealer might still not budge, but you need to stand pat too. Don't just give in. Like you said, don't just let dealers push you around. Um, there has to be some give and take on both sides of the transaction. One last topic, and then I'll let you go, JT, but or, or kind of question or tip or whatever. 
Raw versus graded. How much harder is it to trade raw cards, especially in the vintage realm, because I appeal is so important because it's it, it's hard to find comps on raw, right? And so how do you do that or do you do that at all? And what advice would you give? See, that's that's much more tricky than the discussion that we were that we were just having. And that might be where you have more success in trading some of your modern stuff i would say for raw vintage because a lot of the times a lot of the raw vintage dealers that i find um they're a bit more they they usually have raw vintage for a reason uh, maybe they just don't like rating and they like dealing with raw cards so if you have newer stuff that's in you know psa 10 holders that might not be the people to go to but if you have stuff that you just opened up out of boxes for example a lot of those dealers i find do have like modern value boxes stuff that they could use and if you keep in mind that they're going to have to put it at a price point where they think they can make money on it, but you can move your, uh, I forget who, who I've heard this term from before. I think it was Ty actually, they called it the noise in our collections. Like if you can move that noise away into a few cards that you really want, those might be some really good examples. The problem that you run into is that without that third party grader, no matter how much you may trust your ability to accurately assign a label in terms of conditions so very good condition excellent condition near mint condition a lot of times the dealers have a bias where they're going to view the card in as high of a condition as they could possibly get away with whereas you as a buyer may want to view it in as low as a condition as you can possibly get away with and where it truly lies on that spectrum the truth is most often somewhere in between now there's sometimes where you're right there's sometimes where they're right it's just something that happens. What I would say is if you're buying raw vintage, understand again, what is your motive behind it? So for me, when I've tried to trade or buy raw vintage, the only time that I've done it, I've never done it really as a dealer. Um, it would be for my Tigers ultimate team set. So I built the Tigers top set from 1951 to present day, which required getting, of course, a lot of vintage cards and tracking down some of the key ones some of like the semi-star rookies so your willie hortons your denny mcclain's uh, some of the high numbers in there can be particularly difficult as well that's where i was finding a lot of the issues uh, with people just kind of saying well this is a really nice example but i didn't necessarily want a really nice example because they all went into my binder right. i wanted a card that i could feel like I could comfortably put in my binder and know that it would be safe in there. I didn't really need this one that has razor sharp corners. That's raw. You know, if someone wants to go buy that and grade it themselves or, or have it in their binder, whatever the case may be, that's fine. I just needed a nice looking, well-centered example of the card that wasn't written on. There was no paper loss. As long as it was in good condition and by good, I mean like PSA two quality condition. I didn't care. That's all I really needed. So, I knew that and that was able to save me so much money. And I walked away from many examples where the cards were much nicer than what I really wanted. So understanding exactly what are you trying to get out of it? Are you just trying to build a vintage collection? And if you're just getting started too, it may not be a good idea to just jump headfirst into it because you may not like it. And if you're buying all these cards that are high grade or trading for all these high grade cards in this scenario, you may have regrets if you don't really end up liking them or wanting them at the end of the day. Would they be easier to move? I don't know. 
maybe it depends on who you're looking to move them to and how you're looking to move them. But trading into some low grade vintage cards, if you have a lot of new stuff that from just getting back into the hobby might be your best way to really start sampling the vintage world and really kind of getting your feet wet. And through that, you can also learn a bit more about it so that when you're real willing to put in more money or you're ready to make that next step and buy some of those bigger cards that maybe you wanted to target, you will be more prepared to do so. And I don't say this coming from a position of being all high and mighty and telling you, you know, don't jump in head first. I always say this because I've made the same mistake before where I went through and started to dibble dabble in vintage cards. And I would buy these high grade examples because I just looked at the numerical grade. I didn't think about why I wanted them. I was just told that I should look at vintage cards and I did it without really thinking about it. And those are the types of decisions that usually lead to regret in the hobby. Not always. Sometimes you stumble upon a rabbit hole, but I see it often where they usually regret it. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Um, great discussion, JT. I really appreciated it. Again, I'd, I'd love to see the art of trading become an even bigger part of our hobby. Uh, and again, there's niches where it is a big part. And it's just not a niche that I live in most of the time. So I thought this would be a valuable discussion for people uh, to kind of hear your thoughts about it. Me throw in a couple of mine, which uh, take them for what they're worth, uh, what you paid for it, right? Um, but thanks for being a part of this, JT. I really appreciate it. Tell everybody kind of where they can, if they don't know who you are, uh, where they're new to the podcast or new to the show, where they can find you, uh, where they can watch you on YouTube, Instagram, face, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere that you described. Uh, my YouTube channel, Triple Crown 24, you can find me there. Uh, I do live sales and whatnot. I do some vintage sales on there too. So you can go check me out there. It's the same name, Triple Crown 24. Otherwise, ITS, it's Triple Crown. So ITS Triple Crown on Instagram. You can find me on uh, Twitter with the same handle as well. Do a lot of hobby discussion there. Reach out if you have any questions. Always willing to talk cards. It's uh, something I enjoy doing. As you can tell, I sat down here with Mike for the third time for an hour talking about cards. So I tend to uh, enjoy talking about it. But thanks, Mike, for having me on. I always have a good time. You're welcome. Uh, one other thing I want to bring up, if you're listening still after 50 plus minutes, I appreciate you. And you, you're definitely going to want to hear this next part. And JT is the person that when I submit cards for grading, PSA, I send them to him. He is incredibly trustworthy. He's been my friend for years now, and he does it all the right way. I know there's a lot of controversy in the hobby lately about group submitters. And the, the truth is I use JT because it, he makes it incredibly easy. And I know my cards are going to be taken care of as best as, you know, humanly possible. And I'm going to get them back, you know, from him and great shape, great packaging, all of those things, JT, you do it right. Uh, for those of you out there that are looking for a group submitter, if you just have a few cards, and you want to try grading. That's why group submitters, I think, exist. And then you realize how easy it is. And that's why I still use group submitters. Uh, and I say groups, I only use one group submitter. And that's JT for my PSA stuff. JT also does SGC group submissions. So, uh, JT, why don't you tell everybody if they want to come investigate that, ask questions maybe, 
or whatever where they can find uh, your submission group. You're gonna make me tear up at the end of the show. Jeez, Mike, I, I do appreciate all the all the kind words. It is greatly appreciated. I'm glad that you are happy with the service you've been provided. That's really what I aim to do. Um, I have a Facebook group. That's the best way to get in contact about the grading services. I do it with my good friend Mike of Mike-O. There's a bunch of Mikes out there, but he is Mike-O. You probably are familiar with him as well. Uh, he also does some SGC submissions as well. But uh, do both PSA and SGC uh, through Facebook. Triple Crown 24 of Mike-O's grading submissions is where you can find it. Try to make it as transparent of a process as possible so you know exactly where your cards are at all times and know what is going on with them. My goal is to get them back to you as safely and quickly as possible encapsulated and in better shape than when you sent them in um, in terms of just having them secured, slabbed up back in your collection to do whatever the case may be, though it could be selling, collecting, trading, and then um but you're yeah. my guy man and and seriously i'm telling all you guys if if you don't if you're weary of that or i guess wary and probably both weary and wary of that process you know give jt a shot um you will not regret it and uh on the psa dna side the autograph side jt and i both uh would recommend uh slab city sports cards for group submissions to do those types of things so there are people out there doing it right don't just let some pieces of bad news or even a bad personal experience sour you on the whole idea because i'm telling you it's an anomaly not not normal and i've been doing this a really long time and uh jt does it right so check that out as well all right that's the end of this episode guys remember to send in your questions uh, either on Instagram at Baseball Collector Mike or here on the comments. I'll gather those up and we'll do that episode in a couple of weeks. Till next time, though, everybody out there, what do I like to say, JT? <clears throat> Keep collecting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Keep collecting. See you guys later. Take care.